0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. This week's guest is a long standing and integral member of one of the most successful underwriting teams in the specialty insurance and reinsurance world. Charles Mathias was an original member of staff at Lancashire and is now a core member of the team at Fidelis. As Chief Risk Officer and Board Member, he has total visibility of Fidelis's strategy, and here he doesn't duck any questions. I was surprised by how open he was with me about which segments of the market the now capital-loaded Fidelis is finding most attractive, as well as its approach to developing proprietary technology. Again, he is completely transparent about the special culture and work ethic that has made Richard Brindle-led carriers so distinctive and so successful in the past 15 years. This long-standing market practitioner is also incredibly polite and good-humoured company. All this makes this episode one not-to-miss for anyone who wants to learn the secrets of underwriting success in the hardening market of 2021. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners?
1: Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue Prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claims service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims.
0: Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes. And let's get on with the podcast. Well, Charles, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us. Uh, You're over in Bermuda. I can see sunshine reflecting on the window behind you. It's a busy market, really interesting times. How would you categorize the current market opportunity for Fidelis?
2: I think it is a really exciting time for us. And I think in particular, really, that A lot of the things that we've been very patient about waiting for the right time to develop for us to feel comfortable about deploying into a market or a line of business, that that patience is being rewarded in our original business plan, which was written back in 2014-15 we were intending to be a significant writer of specialty business it's in our track record it's in Richard's track record for 35 years but by the time we got to the point of putting stamps on slips we just didn't feel that the time was right and that pricing was in the right place we sat on the sidelines we've written bits of marine and bits of aviation but really very limited deployments into limited niches in those markets. And now we're seeing that over the course of the last year, really, year to 18 months, that market pressures have pushed pricing up to a point where we think there are attractive opportunities. And we think that this is a really good time for us to kind of move the business forward. And you've seen a huge amount happen to us as a business over the last year. 18 months and we just think this is an exciting market it's hardening in in many different areas and we're trying to enjoy ourselves to be honest this is you know this is a time to be as an underwriter you're on not always on the right side of the trade you're not always getting things your way and so I think you have to enjoy this phase of the market and deploy into it and that's really what we're trying to do and to be a leader to use the experience that some of the gray ahead of of us have got and really try and lead this market in the right direction in terms of pricing and terms and conditions of the whole shooting match.
0: Which market segments are you most happy about, most happy to be putting hopefully bigger lines down on?
2: Certainly bigger lines. I think really across the specialty universe, aviation, the straightforward aviation market, we've seen, we think now good margin there. The DNF book really, strong. You know, I've been involved in DNF business for 36 years now, I think. And this is some of the strongest pricing, particularly when you take into account tightening of terms and conditions and our ability to, you know, monitor aggregate at a very granular level. I think this is some of the best pricing we've seen, probably reflective of the fact that there are more losses in the market as climate change impacts that line. But certainly, that's a very strong market. Energy, probably a bit more disappointing. Not really seeing the movement there. Obviously, there's underlying economic reasons for that, I suppose. But certainly not the most exciting area that we trade in. And then I think to the reinsurance space, there's been an awful lot of talk about how 1.1 renewals went, how 1.4 might go, how 1.6 might go. But I think we've really seen that although there is capacity to get placements finished, it's not at any price. And we think there's been some fairly disciplined deployment and fairly sensible pricing in that space as well. So really... It's not every segment of the market, but we think most segments have had a sensible approach to pricing over the course of the last year. And we're looking to build a position in most of those lines.
0: So it would be right to say that you feel that overall rate adequacy across the book is definitely up and you're happy almost everywhere. Is there any way you still not happy and you think there's got more to go before you want to get involved?
2: We took a look at the onshore energy market last year, to just to take one example. And we tried finding a way to deploy on higher excess layers or somewhere above the MFL or some proportion of the MFL. And we still saw there was a lot of quota share capacity available in that market. And I suppose one of the things that's been driving market hardening in other lines is that some of the big quota share writers have been reducing the amount of capacity that they're willing to pull out. And you've seen people who are writing several hundred million dollar limits at a hundred percent now cutting back to writing a primary or part of a primary. And so that's been driving a lot of new capacity need into the rest of the market, the, the layered market. And we didn't really see that happening in the onshore energy market. So we just didn't really deploy that in any significant way. Rate adequacy, You know, as a chief risk officer, it's a concept I struggle with because it means so many different things to so many different people. It's a function of your capital base. It's a function of your capital base's return requirements. It's a function of your business mix. It's a function of the competition for capacity and aggregate between different lines of business. So there isn't a view of rate adequacy. I think that we think there is decent underwriting margin in a lot of lines of business. I suppose what tempers our view of that is just this view that we certainly believe that climate change is real, is having real impacts both on frequency and severity, and that we are including that in our view of risk. And therefore, we think that we should be being paid more for that risk transfer certainly than we were a decade ago, arguably more than five years ago. So we think there is increasing underwriting margin available, but we think there's a certain escalation of risk on the cat side at any rate.
0: In DNF, the big seafront, beachfront locations, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I think absolutely right. You know that if you just look at last year, for example, 2020, if you believe Aeon's numbers, and they've got as good a market view as most people. They think that it's at whisker under $100 billion of cat losses, but there's no single big cat loss in there. There's no sort of Japanese earthquake or European windstorm or even significant US windstorm. There's been a proliferation of US landfalling hurricanes, but no single very big event. And I just think that when you look at that and you look at that associated frequency, I think that you have to change your view of risk and you have to think about whether taking a longer term view of risk is the right way or whether you should be adjusting for a shorter term view of risk. And so I think, yeah, absolutely things, properties that are sitting on a beach close to warm waters are more likely to get flooded and blown about more often than they were well, certainly than when I started in the business and probably than when we started this business. So, yeah.
0: One subsegment of the insurance market that um, you were looking to get involved in, that you raised a capital for retro sidecar for one one. we We've just had the news that uh, you've been given that capital back or maybe didn't take it up in the end. Presumably that's because return hurdles couldn't be met, but is there any kind of read-across to other markets? Do you think that is that a symptom of the fleeting nature of some of these hard markets? Or is there something special about retro because it's so small and relatively illiquid?
2: I think the retro market is unique. The collateralized retro market serves a very, very, very small subset of the overall insurance market exposure. It's very much at the sharp end, and it is suited to investors who are willing to take a high risk for a high reward. And so when we look at putting it on our own balance sheet, either we're a seller or we're a buyer. And as it turned out at one one, we decided we were a buyer and and not a seller of that particular high rate online, high volatility cover. And we had very grown up discussions with our investor panel and said to them, look, we don't want to put our retention on our balance sheet at these kind of rates. We've described to you what the downside risk is of this kind of product. And therefore, we'd rather hand you the money back. And they were delighted with that. They didn't want us trying to cut corners to shoehorn a deal in and try and make a market where there wasn't one but that was tied to a very specific panel of investors with a very specific view of risk and a very specific risk return requirement obviously it's very different for other people operating that market as we were just saying about rating adequacy so i'm not sure there's a great deal of read across others clearly found opportunities that did work we were a happy buyer of retro at one one and We certainly think that there are decent opportunities around the retro space. It's just, do they fit your particular balance sheet and return requirement?
0: Also, I mean, another big part of all the amazing amount of activity that you've had at Fidelis in the past 12 months, obviously you've had big capital raising, but you've also had a quota share with Berkshire Hathaway. Is a more flexible relationship like a quota share? Should we have another read across from that, that that is a sign that you view that some of these opportunities are reasonably temporary and maybe gone? You're
2: right. We we have had a huge amount of activity. And, you know, we have raised permanent capital, equity capital, long-term debt capital. And part of that capital has come from very much long-term capital suppliers. You know, Adira, very much a a long-term backer. So I suppose there's potentially a tension between that. But I think it helps to understand how we see reinsurance partnerships in the whole. And we use quota share not just from Berkshire. Berkshire, you know, that's a significant quota share. It's a fantastic imprimatur of their belief in our underwriting and our distribution and our discipline. But even that sits within the context of a much broader approach that we have to quota share. And we have—I'm going to get the number wrong—but it's something over 40 quota share partners. It might even be 50 quota share partners now across both cat-exposed and non-cat-exposed lines of business across our specialty book, across our bespoke book. And our view is very much that when we're in a market, we are, above all, a richer Brindle-led company is going to be an underwriting company. And it's going to seek to outperform by doing a better job at picking risks and amalgamating those risks into the most efficient portfolio. And that's very attractive to a lot of people who don't have our distribution and clout and expertise in those specific lines of business. And they recognize that a very good way of them getting diversification is to sit alongside us as a partner in that business. And we like the ability to put down big lines when we have conviction in specific lines of business and the quota share partnerships help us do that so we very much see those quota share partners as part of our capital base and we talk about our quota share partners as assets under management we are absolutely looking after their capacity as part of what we see as our capital stack and so We don't at all regard the Berkshire relationship as a a sort of let's beef it up for 12 months. Richard and Ajit speak regularly and their view of the market, very much like ours, is that this is not a blink of the eye type market. We think there are fundamental drivers of this market that will make for a sustained underwriting opportunity. And therefore, we are very much engaged in the business of trying to make this a, a long term partnership and trying to. Very much make sure that we're able to provide our brokers with capacity throughout the cycle over the long term.
0: We've had a new class of insurer and reinsurer appearing. It might have been a bit early for them, but did you see that any of them made any impact at 1 1?
2: I don't think they had a, an impact in terms of pricing. I think. I think Stephen Catlin was asked this the other day, wasn't he? And I think his point was right. In aggregate, the sort of new, new capital that came in was somewhere around 5, 7 billion, something like that. And this isn't really a market that's being driven by a lack of capital. It's being driven by a lack of profit. And if you talk to regulators and you talk to rating agencies and you talk to analysts and you talk to, above all, to investors, what they are skeptical around is our ability as an industry to cover our long term cost of capital and over the last several years not many people in the space have been able to cover their long term cost of capital and after a while investors get pretty weary of oh well there was a big storm this year or oh well there was two big storms and an earthquake this year or oh well there was a pandemic this year and i think that managements particularly and c-suites particularly are very aware that they need to start making money and with the investment returns on offer at the moment particularly in the fixed income market where it's lower for longer? Is it lower forever? Is it negative interest rates? Whatever it is, it's not the historic return that the industry has relied on and that for many in the industry has supplied the plurality of their profit base. And so I think this realization that if you want to make money, you better do it through your underwriting first and foremost. I think that's a bigger driver of the discipline that you're seeing in the market than any dearth of capacity. And so I think that's really how we see what's driving this hardening of the market is more structural features about our industry and less about is someone gonna bring another 5 billion of capital into the business. That's not really it. So we didn't see any signs of real lack of discipline. From the new entrants. To be honest, we didn't see a great deal of impact from them at all in the lines that, that we are trading. So, good luck to them to get businesses away. We know ourselves it's a lot of hard work to get a business up and running. But I think the fundamental point here is this is not
0: about capacity. On that point, it's not a market defined in any sense by a shortage of capital or capacity. So, in that kind of environment, I suppose you've always been operating in that environment. What's your strategy to really differentiate yourself and make sure that the brokers do pick up the phone?
2: First and foremost, we're a broker market. We absolutely recognise that we are completely aligned with our brokers. And therefore, the first thing is we have to give them a service, which is absolutely top draw. One of the really nice things about this last year is that even with the impacts of covid We have been getting fantastic feedback from brokers about our underwriters, responsiveness, availability, and obviously the capacity that we've been able to bring to bear. So first and foremost, broker service is our number one priority.
0: Is that really in responsiveness and just being able to get that answer quickly?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and you know we we're famous for doing our daily underwriting call. As the market has turned, and whilst capital hasn't been short, capacity in some lines of business has been very short. The fact that we have been able to respond to breakers, and that we've put that at the top of our priorities, practically by saying actually one underwriting call a day isn't enough to service the volume of business that we're seeing we'll have three. So we do one at nine o'clock in the morning in London, one at 2.30 in the afternoon, our usual daily call, and then another at 5.15. And we are making absolutely sure that our underwriters have access to that forum for input and for advice and guidance as they make underwriting decisions. So it is absolutely job one for us is be responsive to the brokers. And, you know, Richard's a very experienced, probably the most experienced trader in our market at the moment. And so, you know, his ability to counsel that underwriting team and say, well, let's not push too hard now, you know, pricing's moving up to a good level. We don't always have to be, get the extra dollar on price or to say, look, Let's not just say no, let's say no, but there must be something we can offer this client. I think that level of responsiveness is key to how we try and differentiate ourselves. And then the other bit is that capacity piece. It is the fact that whilst some lines of business, capital itself is not in short supply, but deployed capacity in a line of business can be tight. And we don't write every line of business. We try and stick to lines of business where we think we've got value to add. And therefore, when we do think we've got value to add and an underwriting edge, we do look to supply significant capacity. And the quota share strategy we just discussed is part of having that significant capacity. And that, I think, very much helps us with the brokers too.
0: I hope the people in Bermuda are excused the 9am. Well,
2: the native Bermudians, if I can call them that, are excused it. But three of us who are over here from <laughs> London, we are doing the 9am call. We knock off you know, around 3, 3.30 in the afternoon from the office, but there's more work to be done back at the ranch. But yeah.
0: What's well, probably a good time to ask you about, when people ask you, what's it like to work with an underwriting legend and market trading legend to define Fidelis's culture? What's your stock response to people when they ask you, what's it like? What's the culture?
2: You're referring to me, obviously, as the underwriting Yeah, absolutely. Legend. You are, yes, of course, yeah, of course. Of course, of course yeah. Well, you know, I don't like to talk about myself. So let's, let's assume <laughs> that that question was about Richard. I think it is people always say, what's it actually like to work here? And, you know, we are known clearly from what happened last year, people know that we work in a very diligent fashion. We have this timeline culture, you know, nothing is sort of, oh, why don't you get back to me in a fortnight or ring him up and see what he says. Every meeting has an agenda. There are action points with deliverables and due dates and that is fundamental to our culture is accountability and sticking to timelines. Working with Richard is very energising. You know, he has got a huge amount of energy. He absolutely believes in client service and responsiveness. And he doesn't ask anything more of anybody than he asks of himself. He is 24-7 available to counsel and and guide his team, meet with clients, talk to investors, whatever it is. So it is a hard-working culture. It's a very close culture we spend we're here in the office in Bermuda we we spend a lot of hours together but I think the softer parts of the culture are very very important to us too so Richard's been very vocal about Black Lives Matter a number of other issues to do with racial justice and human rights we have Led this issue in the London market around a forced labour clause for the marine cargo market, working together with JCC and with Aon and Marsh and a number of other brokers to push that issue forward. We take our commitments to the societies we work in very seriously. So the foundation has just been formally set up. We've been making donations to charity, but part of the remit of the foundation is to get employees to bring to us charities that they're they're very devoted to and that make a difference to these communities where we are privileged
0: to have and run our businesses. Charles, Fidelis, that has almost been designed to be a private company that wouldn't have to be in public markets. I don't know if that's actually correct or not. But do you think we've got a very, very warm reception for investors are crying out for vehicles in which they can invest in insurance in public markets, because particularly in London, where that selection that they used to have, they used to have 20 different vehicles to invest in, and it's gone down to just three or four. Do you think that could ever attract you? Could you ever be coaxed out into the public markets? Lancashire back in the day was a public market company from day one almost.
2: Yeah, it was indeed from day one. Yeah, I think the answer is never say never, but it's certainly not an option that we think about or that we spend time thinking about. I think where we think the strength of a private company comes from is that running a risk business on a public company balance sheet does mean that there is volatility in risk businesses. We're currently taking all the volatility we can out of our business and buying more reinsurance and reducing risk levels on a net level. But there is an inherent tension between what a management team should be doing when you're going through a major loss or a period of volatility if you are a public company. Because job one when that's happening is you want management team focused on what's the market problem we've got to sort out and what's the market opportunity we should be taking. And if you are the CEO of a public company... You are going to be dragged away to talking to shareholders, speaking in public platforms. And that is a distraction from the job you should be doing. The share price yo-yo's up and down. There's a lot of people who don't understand in the public markets. You know, retail investors sometimes just don't understand what the opportunity of a major loss is, as opposed to what the threat of a major loss is, and therefore, on small volumes, you can see yo-yoing share prices and and all the rest of it. So, we think that a private company is a good place for a risk business, obviously we have to talk to our shareholders and we have a very strong dialogue with them, but they are keenly informed about our business. They are long-term holders for our business. And therefore, we think that is a very good place for us to be as a private company. Certainly the activist investors have now targeted insurance companies. For a long time, insurers seem to be free of activist investor activity. That's no longer the case. Again, yes, they can certainly help keep companies honest, but they can also be a very major distraction from business of running the company. So we think we kind of like where we are at the moment. We think we've got a having brought in long-term investors over the course of the last year Capz, alpha and adia that that really gives us a direction of where we think we'd like to go but
0: we're very happy where we are and you've got plenty of finance for the growth that you're planning so you don't you won't need to be ipo'ing at any point sooner. or no intention to
2: No, you've seen, you know, we've raised 1.3 billion of capital over the course of the last of 18 months, whatever it is. So I think our ability to raise capital is certainly clear. And I think that when we think about our commitment to the business, we've got a very much as a management team, we've got a long-term commitment to running this business. We like this business. We're proud of it. We want to carry on building out and improving it. But I think as a capital base, we're very happy not to have the pressures of a public market.
0: And presumably, a bit like you previously, you've been happy to give back capital in the form of special dividends and that kind of thing, so that these holders could get some returns as they go along, as long as you don't need that capital to fund any more underwriting.
2: That's absolutely right, Mark. Yeah. Right now, I think you'd find it pretty difficult to get capital out of our hands. I think we think we've got lots of uses for it. But we know this is a cyclical business and, you know, the cycle hasn't miraculously come to an end. And there is capital that would like to come into the business. And if returns reach a certain level, I'm sure more capital will come into the business. So the cycle hasn't stopped. But I think you've seen from Richard's track history that if we cannot deploy capital profitably into the business then we are not going to cling on to it and depress ROE or let it divert us into writing business that we don't think really has the return in it. So we will always bear in mind, we're responsible stewards of capital, whoever those providers of capital may be. And we will always seek to use that capital responsibly. So absolutely, yeah, if that Sad day comes when we don't think the market is going to last, continue growing. We would hand capital back, so that's absolutely how we think about it.
0: One other market that seems to be in a, the hardest segment of, of the market globally is US ENS. Does that tempt you at all to go and put boots on the ground in the US itself, or do you think Bermuda, you've got your Bermuda platform, is that an efficient place to serve that market from?
2: It's certainly become a more meaningful U.S. ENS marketplace. We're not a casualty market. That's not our area of expertise or knowledge, so that's not an area we transact in. But certainly the growth in the ENS capability on the property side in Bermuda I left the island in 2012. The growth in numbers of people, capabilities, certainly at the brokers, and the sheer scale of the business that they're able to handle has been really significant in that time. So we think Bermuda's a really good ENS market for us. London is still seeing considerable flows and increase in flows over the last year of that ENS business. There's a lot of very good broker relationships. So we don't intend to open a US-based ENS operation per se. We are itching to get back out on the road and go and see clients both old and new. Clearly, we've grown our ENS-related portfolio significantly over the last year. So we're very keen to get back on the road and meet those people and start building relationships for the long term there. So no intention to open in the US, but uh, very keen to build out the scale of that operation.
0: You mentioned before about COVID. There seems to have been, with the one on reports and things out, there seems to be the industry's coalescing around a 50 to $70 billion industry insured loss estimate for COVID. One, does that chime with you? Does it make sense to you? And do you think if it were, would it be quite an easily manageable thing?
2: I'm not sure that we see it as a consensus yet, and that's because I'm not sure there's really consensus around what the loss is. And it's difficult to come to consensus on a number if you haven't got a consensus on what the loss is. So obviously the FCA case is the most sort of dramatic fulcrum point for how a view of the loss changes. But there are many other fulcrum points. You know, in Ireland this week, you've seen a decision where an Irish court made a decision that a number of entertainment pub and hotel policies did give coverage that previously might have been denied. There's obviously a lot of legal argument going on in the U.S., And around the world, Australia, South Africa, right around the world, there's a lot of litigation. And I think there's a lot of litigation to go. There's also this whole question around what is the liability loss? Very few people are putting up any sort of significant liability reserves, one or two exceptions who put up very significant reserves. So clearly some people think there's exposure there. And, you know, whether it's employment practices or DNO or ENO, clearly there is going to be some action there and that will take its time to emerge. So I think the idea that we've got a handle on the loss is probably premature. And if you look at reinsurance renewals at one, a lot of reinsurers and their clients opted to kick the can down the road and say, well, we're not really ready yet either to get in a terrific fight or to decide what the ultimate basis of presentation of the loss is going to be. So we'll say that we haven't taken it into full account at the renewal and we'll revisit it at the next renewal. So, I think it's going to play out over a long period of time. You know, there's lots of very experienced people, Kevin O'Donnell, Stephen Catlin, who are saying we're not there yet. We don't know where we are in terms of a final number and a final basis of loss. So, I think we're very much of the opinion that this has got a way to go yet. And we don't think there is a solid final number.
0: You're lucky in many ways, Charles, that you're a strictly short-tail type operation and have been, always have been, and probably always will be. Something else that you probably would have a view on, opinion still seems to be divided on whether... We've got through this soft market cycle and now come through into a harder market cycle. Obviously, people who are as experienced as you and I know that you don't get any game without any pain from prior years. And I just want to ask you where you stand on this situation of all the analysis you've done. Hopefully, these are long tail casualty losses that other people will have to be paying long into the future. But when you look at the market, do you think whether... We as an industry reserved better in the soft that 2014 to 2019 period than we did, say, in 1996 to 2000. But have we done better or is it still too early to say that there's not a ton of pain to come in the coming years?
2: It's a really good and interesting question, isn't it? Because leave aside the long tail part of it, on the short tail losses, we've seen a sort of longer Tail of development on the short tail losses and less accuracy around initial loss picks. And you can blame that on individual situations. You can say undercapitalized Florida carriers who didn't have sufficient adjusting resources and the lack of transparency around loss adjustment expense. But then, you know, you've had very big, sophisticated companies in Japan who've also seen significant loss creep on large events. So it's not solely a long-tail issue. As you rightly say, we're not long-tail experts, but I suppose what we do look at, and we talk to clients and brokers about it, and clearly if loss picks are going up, in this year when pricing is going up, it would be some kind of indication that prior year loss picks when pricing wasn't as good might be inadequate. And in fact, we were talking to one very senior broker the other day who was saying to us, if you are a major casualty writer who hasn't executed 2018 and prior year, 2015 to 18 year lost portfolio transfer, you've probably got some quite serious pain coming down the road. So I think that again, alongside the absence of profit and the absence of investment return, that idea that the casualty crisis has dropped out of consciousness over the last year because courts have been closed and there was a temporary feel that claimants and lawyers would settle quickly just to get a settlement done because, you know, they had other issues to worry about. That actually might now be receding and that the problems that underlay what we were describing as the casualty crisis, actually haven't gone away. It's been something of a false dawn, and that as the economy opens up again, they're going to come roaring back, and none of the underlying issues around that, whether it's opioids or talc or jury sentiment, none of that has actually gone away. It's just gone quiet for the last year. So we certainly think that that is a continuing and contributory factor to the hardening market.
0: But it is odd in a world where property cat has become reasonably long tail, just because of plaintiff lawyers getting, turning it into a casualty class.
2: Yeah, and, you know, obviously you're seeing perhaps better progress with legislation in Florida this year than we've seen in recent years around trying to reverse some of that. But it is, you know, it is adjusting claims is a more difficult process and particularly again if you believe in climate change and you believe in a higher frequency of loss one of the issues that's clear to us now is that if you have a sequence of major losses in different geographies around the US adjusting resources get stretched pretty thin and when you don't adjust claims quickly claims get bigger so you know again there's a factor that we have to bear into our thinking on our view of risk there as well
0: it's a bit like demand surge uh, yeah you have to factor in with, with adjusting itself yep exactly Lloyd's itself is really in the middle of a revolution lots of exciting things happening there reforms and lots of new ventures and new ideas does it something that piques your interest um presumably you're always paying a watching brief as to what might be happening in Lloyd's and would you ever rule out going back in and um you know, not going back in as Fidelis, but going back into sort of culturally coming home morally and metaphorically.
2: So obviously, you know, Richard started his career and had a long and very successful tenure there. I think the difference that he would describe between Lloyd's then and Lloyd's now, clearly a lot of very good things have happened to Lloyd's and there were practices back in the day which were not great and absolutely needed to change and be brought up to date. And a lot of very good work has been done there. But we, we do look at Lloyd's from time to time and ask ourselves the question. And I think our business is very much based on being a leader and being agile. And when we see a market opportunity, we want to develop a response and deploy to that market opportunity straight away. And our ability to bring our executive team together at a moment's notice, cross those three hubs. And when we talked about our underwriting call earlier, all three hubs participate in at least two of those calls. So Very much that focus on working together, cooperation. Let's get all the minds in the company together. Let's think about this. Let's get actuaries, the developers, the underwriters, the finance guys, the risk people, the lawyers. Let's get everyone together and find a solution to a new problem or a new client demand. That's something we really, really value. And the idea that having done that, we then have to go to someone else and explain to them What we'd come up with, why that worked for us, why it should work for them, why we wanted to go off and do it on our own and not syndicate it with a bunch of other people, how it would impact somebody else's capital structure. I think we find it hard to get past that the bureaucracy that is there and we understand why that bureaucracy is there and that there is a quid pro quo around you know you get the benefit of the central fund but the central fund has to be protected we completely get that but just from the way we work and the way we are wired we want to make our own decisions and we want when it's right to make that decision quickly and decisively
0: Something else about Fidelis is this emphasis you've put on developing your own technology and proprietary systems. In the last three or four years, obviously, as a, as a journalist, I've been covering this quite exciting insurtech phenomenon. Would you describe parts of your business as an insurtech? And if not, how do you interact with some of these um, exciting new technologists who are starting to scale the heights of insurance?
2: Indeed. If you ask Richard, we are an insure tech because he said, he said, I've looked it up. And the definition of insure tech is using technology to help you make better underwriting decisions or improve distribution. And that's what we do with our tech. And so absolutely, we think that those two things, but particularly helping you make better decisions about your underwriting by First of all, having control of your data and we've built our own front end underwriting system so we can capture every data point we want about our underwriting. We can tell our underwriting team that data point is important to us so you need to capture it in the system. on the exposure side, we capture every piece of data on exposure and we've built internally a system called FireAnt with its own data science and development team. And that enables us to have absolutely real-time views of our exposure. And we, we had a good example the other day when all the Trump-associated rioting was taking place and there, there was a threat that every capital in the U.S. was going to be assaulted and under siege, we were able to say, take all 50 US state capitals, tell us what SRCC, strike Rights Civil commotion exposures we've got in the immediate vicinity of a state capital. And it was a question of minutes of getting hitting buttons, saying this is the query, what exposures we get and getting that answer back. So that live ability with information we think really helps make better decisions. We had AIR in to look at it and they said the way you use AIR's data set and technology in your own proprietary is the best use of it that we've seen. And so we're absolutely dedicated to building that tech out we started with the cat related lines we're now building it out into all our specialty all our bespoke businesses so in you know, our ecat our Afic, you know terrorism dnf all those other lines are going to be brought under that same banner and we absolutely believe there's a huge amount that you benefit from but we like doing it in house come into our office here all our offices london bermuda dublin all open plan and the teams sit next to each other and so you get the developers and the data scientists and the actuaries and the underwriters all sitting around each other and there's real cross-pollination of ideas really good uh, examples of it and i was talking to one of the guys who works So we had a meeting with the wordings team, the guy who does the front end processing of the underwriting system. And then one of the developers was sitting across from me and he heard us talking about how we use clauses and exclusions in the underwriting system and how the wording team want to use them. He said, but that's exactly what I'm trying to work on for the development in end of how we make sure we're getting all the exclusions pulled in. So having it in-house, we think there's a great value to it. We're lucky we've got a really good team, but that's certainly something we're very keen to develop. So we believe in ensuring tech so firmly that we are one is the short
0: answer so if any insurtechs are listening does that preclude you collaborating with third-party vendors and or is it open house you want all of this people who've got different tools or now that you've got a really good data lake are you actively encouraging insurtechs and those sort of people with different ideas to come and plug into that and give you new insights are you sort of an open house for that kind of thing or you want to keep it all to yourself
2: The way we think about it is where we think there is real value add, we want to do it in-house and we want to build it and understand it because our business, we're not doing homeowners or motor where it's a very homogenous data set. Our data sets are spiky, unique, have lots of unique features. So we think that's best done in-house where we think there is something that we can take off the wall. And, you know, we're not trying to rebuild RMS or AIR. We think they do a pretty good job with what they do at a base level. We just want to then be able to suck that data in through an API and bring it into our system, combine it with our capital model, with our rating model, with everything else. So it's really about if we think there's value added, we really want to do it in-house. If someone else is doing it, in a way where we can't add value, then yeah, absolutely we'll buy rather than build.
0: And I suppose because it's specialty markets, they're quite small. It's not as if you can suddenly you find you've got this tool and you realise you could actually sell it to, to third parties. That's probably only got a limited market, and it's probably to your, one of your direct competitors, and you probably wouldn't want, rather they wouldn't have it.
2: Funnily enough, we've got a couple of people who are knocking at our door at the moment, saying, "Gosh, we've heard that you've got <laughs> a tool that can do this, and we're just trying to." Um, We do think it's a differentiator and a competitive advantage. So for the moment, we're going to keep it quite tight to our chest. But absolutely, look, you know, if there's ways that we could develop an income stream from that where we didn't think it was giving our advantage away, certainly we'd
0: think about that. That's a much purer definition of an tech that's trying to make make a living doing that. Charles, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. I was just looking at the clock and, and time's flown did. Right, bye. It's been a real privilege to, Fidelis doesn't, let's say, it, it's not to say that you're really publicity shy, but you're relatively publicity shy. And so it's not that often the people in the media get a chance to talk to one of you. It's been fantastic for you to show us around the way that you think, and you've been incredibly open. And I've really enjoyed that. So good luck with everything. I hope it continues to be an exciting and expansive year for you. And we'll come and have a chat sometime soon for an update. So thank you so much.
2: Well, no, Mark, it's a great pleasure. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure we're so much publicity shy. I's just very busy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, excellent. Thank you so much, Charles. Thanks, Mark. Enjoyed it. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in The Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest-growing medium and attracts a high-quality audience of key decision-makers. It's also an intimate medium, where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.